Welcome to this week's sermon from Amboco Christian Centre. We've come to the end of our autumn series, which was entitled More Than Me. Um, I started back in September, so I'll finish. That's a, seems appropriate, doesn't it? So, uh, so what I'm going to talk about this morning, I'm going to talk about something that hopefully will stretch you to think differently. I'm going to talk about communal confession, communal confession. And, um, and I'm going to try and do it in 30 to 35 minutes. And as Tim alluded to last time he spoke, both he and I would always like much more time. So I'd probably like an hour and 30 minutes. But we're, we're going to try and do it in 30 minutes. But uh, 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 let's open our hearts to the Lord and ask him to speak to us in a fresh and new way. If you recall in my introduction in September, um, uh, I, I sort of talked about part of the aim of this series, really, is to push back against a primary principality or power or idea, big idea, called, um, I think I use the word expressive individualism, or let's call it radical individualism. There's a lot of radicalization in our world currently, isn't there, on a number of uh, issues, but all find their origin in this idea of radical individualism. And this is governing everything in the world. It's governing us economically, you all know that. It governs us Politically, in many, many ways, it governs us socially. Individualism governs us socially. This big idea, I would call it a principality or power, if you use Paul's language, is governing at a primary level. Um, but it also governs us psychologically as well, I think. And I've got time to unpack all of these things. And I think, and I'm going to make this point, it governs us spiritually as well. And... Uh, and if, if I was to sum it up, which I think I did when I spoke first spoke in, uh, uh, in early September, um, I said it could be summed up as a world of personal gain and private profit. Uh, it's the world of me, my, and I. And at its very nature, at its very core, at a principal level, it is anti-Christ. Uh, if you want to understand what anti-Christ is, do a bit of exploration of the whole subject of radical individualism. It's the absolute opposite of the gospel. The gospel at its core, I think I mentioned, is absolutely different. The big idea of the gospel is about a God who so loves humanity that he's so committed to the future of the human race and indeed the world in which we live um, that he embodies the absolute opposite of this idea of radical individualism and lovingly, uh, incredibly... In, a, in, a, in the most uh, uh, outrageous, radical act of self-giving love, he pours himself out on a cross as he's crucified by the Romans. But what I would say is, sadly, in many ways, even though we know that to be the truth, even the gospel itself, I think, the way we understand the gospel, has been impacted by individualism. You could say that this goes back maybe even to when Luther first pinned his thesis uh, to the door in Wittenberg that, that it began, we began a trajectory of looking at the gospel in a highly individualized way. What do I mean by that? I think we've sort of privatized the gospel in so many ways. We think of it speaking to me, but we have less concept of the gospel's power for us and the collective life we hold, and indeed the gospel's power to change the world in which we live. And I want to try and illustrate one of the ways that we've privatized that this morning. So on this first slide, we think of sin as individual acts of wrong. Of course it's right. There are, we have individually sinned. 
but it's about a common trajectory of humankind. Sin is a power that empowers a trajectory where humanity is walking in the opposite way of God, to, to God. Do you see what I'm saying? That's why repentance is primarily not about repentance. It is about repentance from a sin. It's a change of trajectory. That's what repentance is. It's saying we headed in this direction. My life is heading in an opposite direction. And that has social, psychological, uh, economic and spiritual consequences for us all. So we think of sin in a very individualized way. We certainly think of confession as an individualized way. Don't we? This, this is all private. It's between me and God. And of course, there is confession between you and God. But we cannot simply stop there with confession. It's not simply a private act between me and God. And I'm spilling the water, so I'm going to put it down here. Look at that. Anybody want a shower? Um, and then, of course, uh, in so many ways, we think of salvation or redemption. The story as, an, as, as we highly individualize it about my salvation and my redemption. Uh, John pushes us to think differently about this. The verse that's often used when we preach the gospel about your individual salvation. For God so loved the world. And we all know the word world means cosmos. See, This somehow starts to describe this grand big idea that God's got for your salvation. Most definitely. But for the redemption of the whole of creation. Do you understand that? His interest is not just your individual soul. His interest is a people and the place in which they live. That's the story of the Garden of Eden. We might touch on that a little bit this morning, but I mustn't go there too soon. Okay. So for me, on this second slide, you can see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, announces that it's not just about our individual formation, Equally as important, it's about our collective formation. And it's about the formation of the world in which we live. It's about the formation in which we live. So that's enough of an introduction. Let me get on to this subject of communal confession. And so I'm, I'm going to try and do three things. I'm firstly going to demonstrate, this is the next slide, hopefully. Thank you very much. First, I'm going to demonstrate that confession is a communal act. It's something we do together as well as an individual act. We all know about individual acts, but I want to look at the communal act. I want to look at confession from a really broad perspective and help us to understand that there's more to this than the way we've religiousized the word to mean. Okay? And then we're going to talk about how. So what can we do differently and how will this affect our communal life together? Is that okay? So let's start by looking at some scriptures. Um, earlier this year, uh, for Christmas, one of the books I had last year was... Um, uh, a rabbinic commentary on the book of Leviticus. There you go, I get weird presents for Christmas. I said, are you serious? You have those sort of things for Christmas? But uh, I really wanted this book because, I don't know about you, but I find some books in the Old Testament quite difficult to understand. Well, maybe you don't, but I find Leviticus a little bit like, it's like chewing on nuts and bolts sometimes, isn't it? Really seems to be hard work. But what I found from a journey I went to, I went to Israel and um, uh, uh, touched some rabbinic um, writing and it's been really helpful. So I took this, I took this rabbi's writing, Rabbi um, Shmuel's writing, and um, so I, I, I read, I read, I read Leviticus alongside his, uh, alongside his commentary, and it, it revolutionised my understanding of the book of Leviticus. I mean, I, it, Jewish people read the Bible in a totally different way to we read it. You know, they 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 ask questions that we don't ask. We sort of quite got a, lin, a, a linear binary way of approaching. 
the Bible in the West, but they have a very different way. Anyway, more about that on another day. So um, what I did was uh, um, read, read Leviticus, and I came across this scripture. We'll read this scripture. Um, so this script, this verse comes from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 16.21, and it comes in the context of Yom Kippur, the Jewish festival that recognizes the Day of Atonement. This is still the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And on this day, um, they do what they call, they practice repentance. That's an interesting word, isn't it? So they've actually got a festival in their life as a community in which they practice repentance. It's quite an interesting thought, isn't it? A sort of liturgical practice, a point at which um, their lives are reorientated to God. Do you know what I mean? Repentance, as I said, is about a return as much about leaving one way. It's a return to the Lord, uh, a part of repentance that we often don't talk about. And, uh, and uh, this is the verse here, and this becomes the foundation on which they have a, uh, Jewish people would might, uh, let's call it a theology for communal confession. And uh, I can't, I haven't got time to talk about the, co- the absolute context of this, but it says this. He will lay both hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then the man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. And this provides, as I say, a foundation for them understanding confession as a, um, as a communal act. Uh, this rabbi notes, he says, we read of the priest's verbalized confession of communal sin as he lays hands on the scapegoat. So this is the foundational idea of a sense of communal confession. And then we look at this verse. Uh, I know we were going to talk about Old, Old, Old Testament verses, but I'm going to flip now to a New Testament one. You'll be really familiar with this verse from James chapter 5. This particular passage of James is about praying um, and, uh, and prayer. But it says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We'll come to this word healed in a moment. Uh, James chapter 5 in my good evangelical Pentecostal tradition was all about having a little bottle on the stage of oil and people called forward and you'd get, in one case I remember somebody pouring an entire bottle over somebody, but you get anointed with oil, Okay. And we think of a healing in the context of physical healing. Uh, James, in this particular verse, is not solely talking about your physical healing. He's talking about your soul, your mind, and, and your body. But we'll go for this in a minute. And then the next verse, so that's hundreds of years later, James confirms really some of what we read in Leviticus. And here's one of my favorite verses. Um, uh, a good friend, um, John Cook. Uh, once bought me a brandy glass with this verse <laughs> engraved on it as a gift because I, I, I think <laughs> I talked and talked and talked about it all the time. So here we go. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But listen to this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. I'm going to talk about this word fellowship in a moment because, again, it's a Christianized word. But um, we need to sort of push into what that might mean. So our fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So we see here, the outpoured love of Christ is effective in our relationship with each other as well as our relationship with the Lord. So they're the scriptures we're going to use. And now let's get to the body of 
the preach so that I can get done in 35 minutes. Normally, the question you'd ask is, is what is confession at this point, wouldn't you? To, to, to resolve this problem, you'd say, what is confession? Um, but I think before we can say what is confession, we have to understand what it is we're confessing. Would you agree with me? And so what I'm going to talk about, first of all, is so if we're to confess our sins, what is sin? I don't want to challenge us to think differently about sin this morning as well. So, okay, so let's, let's put this next slide up for me. So if you were to say that sin is an axis, so um, if you say um, uh, thou shall not steal, Okay, we would put that then at, at this end, wouldn't we? And um, often our, our perspective of sin is far too much on this, on this left-hand side of the axis. Do you know what I mean? So we actually think about acts and things we do that are wrong. So, well, I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I haven't stolen or I don't steal, so tick, I'm okay. So, but this misses the point, really. What, what we end up with there, if you're not careful, is moralism. We end up with a gospel that's about right and wrong, things you do and don't do, not about the life that God's calling you into. Do you see what I mean? But actually, the truth of it is, so if you say that's taking, on the other end of this axis, there'd be generosity. Who is God? Where's God on the axis? Hello, you've all gone to sleep, have you? No? Is that, so you, you can talk back. It's okay. He's, so, he's, so he's here, isn't he? For God so loved. I mean, he gave himself, poured himself out without considering cost or measure. or You know what I mean? This is the amazing thing about God, isn't it? So God's on this side. So, the, so sin's not simply the presence of something wrong, but the absence of something right. Does that make sense? So it, you might not steal, but you might be tight. Yeah? This morning I have to announce, you're in sin. Someone could dress it up as being careful with my money. I'm not saying you shouldn't be careful with your money. You should be careful. You should budget and all those things. But I, are, you, are, you, are, you, are you getting my drift here? The gospel doesn't just deal with what's on the left, but it empowers a movement from the left to the right. Because this is about being made. We're, we're made to be in the image of God. You see, what the image of God is not the absence of wrong. It's the presence of glorious good. Does that make sense? So where the gospel draws us is from the left to the right. Generosity is the image and glory of God. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we're not careful, we go through a list of measures of sin. So actually we're not too bad really. The issue is God is all the gospel is about drawing you into the image of God. So we've all fallen short of the glory of God. The point of Christian living is not Merely the absence of sin, but it's the presence of God-likeness. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's see if I've left anything else out of there. Yeah. So the, so the point of the gospel is we're enslaved to this end. We're drawn in that direction. That's the power of sin. Yeah, and... and um, uh, and uh, a theft is not just objects, is it? We, we all fully understand this. So at a primary level, for example, and this is rape dehumanizes the person who's being raped, doesn't it? Do you see what I'm saying? Um, uh, enslaving people, 
dehumanizes them. You take away their identity, don't you? So, I mean, so, so this helps us to think about theft in a, you know, we sort of can be quite self-righteous about some of this. Or we think, I'll return that pencil to work and I'm, I'm all right. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So sin is dehumanizing. The power of the Spirit of God through the gospel is to f- bring us into the full, in- full image of God, which is being fully human. So then, that leads us to the question then, what is confession? I'm probably walking about too much for the online people. but Okay, so what is confession? Let me just sort of try and articulate this. I haven't got time to talk about all of it, but I pick three things. Number one, naming and telling God about the individual acts that we have committed. But it's much more than that. Uh, so it's not about the individual acts we've committed. This is, this, this is why I'm trying to get you to think in a more broad way about confession. In its broadest sense, our confession is the verbalization of the gap between who we are and who God intended us to be. Who we are currently and who God intended us to be. So our, our confession is not just the things we do wrong, but in some way it's bringing into the open the way I've fallen short of the ultimate glory of God. Does that make sense? And then, let me say this other thing. Um, I think Leviticus points to a liturgical practice. What do I mean by that? I mean a rhythm in our lives. And as I've read more of the Old Testament in the last two years, I've I've realized that some of these are absent in my life and I need to put them in, Sabbath being one of them. We we talked about a long time ago. So we should have an individual rhythm and practice, but remember, confession equally cannot be consigned to a rhythm it's a way of living. And I'll try and explain that in a, in a, in a moment. So, on to uh, 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 the whole idea of why confession is important then. Uh, this is an important question um, because the psalmist tells us nothing is hidden from God. He therefore knows my sin. He knows my shortcomings. He knows my failures. Why confess them? Who is the beneficiary of our confession? I'm still thinking about it, but I'm convinced that confession is a gift to us and is probably more knowing the loving God that we serve for us than it is for him. I need to put some more thought into that, but does that make sense? Yeah. So number one. Confession, or I put disclosure, and the reason I put disclosure is confession, some of these words do have sort of, um, we, uh, we have um, uh, uh, preset definitions in our head that are highly influenced by our religious upbringing on some words. So fellowship's one of them. Brother, it's been really good to enjoy fellowship with you, is what people used to say to me, you know, when I, when I was sort of... 24 and just comes on it's been beautiful to have fellowship with you I understand what they mean but I'm not sure looking back that we really had fellowship he talked a lot to me and I listened but I don't uh, I'm not sure that that was really fellowship but you know and I mustn't be facetious so and the same thing with confession so let's call, let's call it disclosure disclosure is a primary building block in true relational connectivity why do I say that because the power of sin isolates us we have this great narrative um, in the book of Genesis 
the most beautiful, poetically written story of Adam and Eve that has foundational truths in every waking reading of this amazing story. But when Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They retreat into the shadows, they seek to hide, and they seek to cover up. The very power of sin isolates us, and it has an impact for Adam and Eve on their fellowship with God and on their fellowship with one another. It has this um, really catastrophic effect. So it impacts how it's primarily about relationship, you see. It's how they relate to God, how they relate to each other, how they relate to themselves, and how they relate to the world in which they live. They're all impacted on that day. And we remain primarily disconnected with God, disconnected with ourselves, disconnected with each other, and disconnected with creation. Do you see what I mean? We're isolated in so many different ways. So it draws them into the shadows, and they end up in this life of um, cover-up. Humanity's fellowship with God and with each other is, uh, is impacted by their failure. So let me think, let me just challenge you. Think about this word fellowship, this word fellowship as the mutual bond in which a common life is shared. A definition for fellowship. A mutual bond in which a common life is shared. You could call it covenant, but that has religious connotations as well. This is why John says, if we say we have fellowship with him yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John invites us collectively, not individually, he invites us collectively out of the shadows and to a life lived by walking in the light. What does this mean? How can you and I have true fellowship with one another? How can we recover the mutual bond in which a common life is shared, then I've got to walk in the light. And walking in the light means living life vulnerably, confessing our sins, disclosing the shape and nature of what's going on inside of us to each other. So true, race, true relational connectivity, the primary building block, is confession one to another. It's true of God. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. It's true too in a communal setting. Number two. Confessional disclosure helps reveal, helps reveal of, that's not right, is it? Confession disclosure helps reveal our, that should say, sorry about that, our hidden unity or common unity or community. So the power of sin not only isolates us, the power of sin divides humanity. It creates, an, I don't know whether this would be your observation over the last 18 months since we've um, been in lockdown, etc. It creates tribalism, we become polarised. Rich and poor, successful and failures, right and left, gay and straight, feminism and misogyny. We could go on. We also live in a competitive world. This can lead us to often thinking that others are doing better than us. People carefully curate their Facebook status 
carefully and selectively putting the right pictures in the right poses. I don't know about you, when you look at it, I don't look at it much, but everybody seems to have a much better life than the life that you've got. They seem to have it all together. But I would say this, confession reveals our hidden unity. Whether rich or poor, gay or straight, successful or seemingly unsuccessful, we all share a common, mutually held identity. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. Because the Apostle Paul tells us, no one is excluded, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Many of us feel alone and isolated and separated from others in our struggle to be the person God's calling us to be. This, I am convinced, is the dehumanizing power of sin. And somehow we need to get to a point where we're able to talk more openly and more honestly with each other. Because you need to know you're not the only person struggling with unforgiveness. You're not the only person struggling to be a good parent. You're not the only person battling pornography. You see, a common unity exists in our confession. Confession brings us out of isolation and it realizes that though we think where I am, what I'm doing with the state of my life, is not like anyone else's. The truth is we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Two more. Thirdly, confession or disclosure begins our journey of change. What do I mean by this? So let me talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, uh, how important it is to verbalize, to actually say, to describe, to, um, as I've talked about, to put into words the gap between who I am and who God's calling me to be because it's inextricably linked to um, our uh, mental, physical and emotional welfare. So let me quote a few people. Number one is Freud. Freud, the well-respected Austrian, Austrian neurologist, asserted that we are only as sick as our secrets and I think you'll find contemporary psychology confirms this. A guy called J.W. Uh, Penbaker wrote a book called Opening Up in which he charts some of the physical benefits of confessing. Putting things into language, telling truth, he says, can even affect the human immune system in beneficial ways. Rambam, my favourite ancient Jewish scholar. That makes me sound clever, and I'm not at all. I've read very little of his stuff, but this 12th century scholar, he says this. Feelings, emotions, thoughts, and ideas become clear and are grasped only after they're expressed in sentences. As long as one's thoughts remain repressed, as long as one has not brought them out into the open, they are not truly yours. They are foreign and elusive. The point the Rambam's making is the need to verbalize that gap between who we are and who God has called us to be. And this is borne out by King David's confession, which I'm sure many of you will have read in Psalm 32, when he talks about the repression of his sin. 
His unconfessed sin takes its toll on him physically. He says this, I'm, I have kept silent about my sin. My body wasted away. Isn't that a fascinating thought? That my inability to articulate, to verbalize what's going on, actually is having a physical effect on David here. And emotionally, my groaning all day long, my vitality was drained. David's exhausted, drained by his failure to verbalize, to put into words, to articulate his sin. And so the very life of, of his very life was drained from him. But though he initially denies himself healing and the restorative power of forgiveness, he eventually lays himself bare. And then as I've said, Jesus, um, I think there's another slide for this, is there, or not? No, we'll go back. Jesus confirms, uh, uh, James reveals this, same root of healing hundreds of years later. Therefore, if we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, we will be healed. As I've said already, this verse comes in the context of prayer and healing, but it advocates, I think it advocates a, 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 um, a rhythm uh, or a ritual that sh- we should share as part of, our, of the life we hold together. And that is of confession one to another. For some, this might be a quite a scary thought, but I actually think that this is what James is advocating, that, there are, that, that I wonder... Yeah, so I'm going to do this in a minute, but I wonder, who is it that you feel you can disclose, tell the secrets of your heart to? I wonder. I think it should be a part of our regular way of living life together as the community of God, as the people of God. And then fourthly, confessional disclosure is an act of personal sacrifice. So I think confession becomes a dislocating act which moves us beyond shame And in a sense, as we confess, as we verbalize our sin, our will is in one way broken. Our willfulness is broken and submitted to God and each other as we're forced to confess. It's an act against our natural inclination and will. Because our natural inclination is to hide, to repress that information. But the Bible advocates it's in the open. One, little, one last quote from, from Rambam. He says this, Just as sacrifice is burnt upon the altar, so do we burn down by our active confession, our well-barricaded complacency, our overblown pride, and our artificial existence. Such beautiful words, aren't they? But there is this sense in which that act of personal sacrifice, we become undone and face the truth about ourselves in new and fresh ways, with friends that we can trust to pray for us and to listen to us and pray for us. So one more quote. This is me. <laughs> confession is an act of sacri- confession as an act of sacrifice is part of the sanctification process. So part about coming to be like Jesus, part of being a disciple, part of going on a discipleship journey, I'm increasingly convinced can't take place without confession. Sacrifice is part of a sanctification process, another step towards Christ-likeness, to be as God intended, his image bearers. We should view confession as mandated by the Bible as a gift, a means by which we humble ourselves, both in the presence of God and our fellow penitents, and in doing so, discover afresh 
the truth that the ritual of confession and the subsequent forgiveness of sin are ordained conduits of healing. Not just for me as an individual, but for us as a body. My point is, there's more of the life of God and that mutual bond in which we hold a common life to be found as we confess our sins to one another. And just to finish this off, you say, well, that's all very good, Adrian. Lots of information. And you can have my notes if you want my notes. You can have the slides if you want the slides. Now, what do I do about this? You know, great, good, good bits of information. What, what on earth can I do? It's really difficult, isn't it? Because um, how do I decide what the best advice is to give? But here we go. So two things. And, uh, and this is a question. It's not pressure to do anything. Can you decide today to begin to live a life of disclosure and confession? Or at least begin to consider what it might be like to disclose and confess increasingly as a part of the way you come into the fullness of the image of Jesus. One of the very freeing things, I don't know whether to talk about this or not, one of the freeing things for me was uh, in the first six weeks after Ed took his life, I found it very, very beneficial to keep a journal, to write. And as I wrote... Um, I discovered there were more things in me. And so I wrote this journal. Um, and then I said to two friends, uh, do you mind me sending you the journal? I mean, some of it isn't nice. Very, very honest, including some bad language. But the joy of sharing your journey with someone else, even the bad parts, even where you think you've got some things you really need to put right before God was unbelievably powerful. And so, can you make a decision to live a life of disclosure? And the second thing is, who has God given you with whom you can begin this rhythm of confession? What might God use to invite you out of the shadows? Who might God use, sorry, to invite you out of the shadows and into the light? Yeah, so let's just pause for a moment while we sort of consider. I've given you loads of information. Let's just pause and just hold our hearts before the Lord. Uh, you don't have to shut your eyes, but might sometimes it's good to shut your eyes. it mean to live a life that's more than me I would suggest that being vulnerable in its broadest sense confession is living life vulnerably with others and it, it, it becomes my deep conviction that when we do that we, we disempower the power of sin 
and it enables us to go on that return journey, that reorientation towards God and the likeness that he has for us to walk into. So confession restores true relational connectivity. That sense of developing that mutual bond in which a common life is shared. Confession helps us realize that we're not alone. But actually, deep down, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are, we share a common identity. Confession begins your journey of change. Speaking it out. Comes, alongside speaking it out, comes the power to heal you in so many different ways and bring you into the fullness of what God is destined for you. And it's a, a personal act of sacrifice. Both before God and before each other. So Father, we, we hand to you the words that I've falteringly articulated this morning. And... Um, We ask you, Holy Spirit, to breathe upon your word and change us, reorientate us, and may we increasingly uh, step into being the fully human human that you've made us to be as we learn to live a life of disclosure. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Amoco Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website, www.amocochristiancentre.org.uk.